this house tonight. Just want to say thank you, Pastor, and honor you for having me. And so would y'all show some honor to your pastor for, for allowing this to go on and uh, just honor you. And I pray tonight just refreshes you and fulfills whatever God has given you for this church. And, um, man, I tell you what, whew, Holy Ghost tonight, y'all. Let me just tell you that in preparing for revival meetings or services, God, typically during a week revival, a week time revival, I usually know what I'm preaching on before I even get there. Very rarely do I have to actually prepare a message the day of or something like that. Usually God gives it to me the week before and I'm able to prepare. That way the next week when I'm wherever I'm at, I'm able just to sow myself into prayer for the altar service and just try to hear from heaven for specific direction for that night. And as I was preparing to come here last week, the Lord gave me direction for Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, but I couldn't get a thing from Monday or Tuesday. I think it's safe to say that this did not catch God by surprise. And God knows everything and is orchestrating even the service tonight. The delay was definitely not his denial. And I will tell you this, I already had two people coming up to me tonight and say, I think we're going to be here till midnight. I'm like, I'm ready. If God's going to move, let it happen. No wonder I got this three-hour sermon. No, but hey, it's good to have my armor bearer tonight. My daughter Gabby, she come with me. She lived up to her name Sunday. She talked my ear off the whole way here and the whole way back home. But I, I got refreshed just having her with me. So it's good to have her here with me tonight. And just want to bless her and thank her for making the sacrifice to come with me. I, I feel the Lord stirring the atmosphere. I've been stirring my soul today. And then when we were driving here, we were praying and worshiping. And then all of a sudden, about... 20 minutes before Rosebud, something hit us. Breakthrough. And that same break, that same kiss of heaven is in this atmosphere here tonight. Tonight, there are people here that do not know Jesus. And right now, you know that you don't know Jesus Maybe some of you don't want anything to, be with, to do with Jesus. But I'm here to tell you that tonight is your night of salvation. There are people here tonight that you've not been baptized yet with the Holy Spirit. I believe tonight can be your night. And there's been some of you, it's been a long time since you can say that you know you've experienced a fresh encounter with the Holy Spirit tonight is your night. I believe that this word that God has given me is the heartbeat of heaven. I believe in the ministry of the evangelist. There are some people that might argue that what I'm doing is not the real work of the evangelist. And I've heard those arguments and there are some valid arguments. I've heard people say, when I told them I felt like I was called to travel and go as an evangelist, they said, well, the evangelist is not needed anymore because people aren't, have revival, aren't having revival meetings. And whether you believe 
that what I'm doing is not true evangelistic work or whether you think the evangelist is no longer needed because people aren't having revivals like they used to. Both of those are faulty because the evangelist is not dependent upon revivals and the evangelist just doesn't go out and preach on the streets. The evangelist, according to the five-fold ministry operation, is to equip the saints for service. And this word right here, I believe, is a word from an evangelist to equip this body for service. And I believe that every person in here, including myself, would take this thing out the door. We would see revival in Heber Springs and in Arkansas. Are you ready to be equipped? Be ready also to be cut on and convicted. If you have your Bibles, go to the book of Matthew, chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, as you're turning there, I just want to honor you, church, and thank you in advance for your giving. I mentioned Sunday night that the last time I was here last summer, you guys displayed the greatest amount of generosity I'd ever seen. And I was just blown away. For like three days I'm at home, I'm like, look at my wife and say, can you believe what those people blessed us with and helped us? Because the week before I went somewhere and I didn't get a dime. And I'm like, all right, Lord, I trust you. And I come here and y'all just pretty much... Uh, knock my teeth out. Looks like I got some missing anyway. But they're not missing. It's just a gap, okay? Dennis couldn't fix it. He said, I'd put you, put you together. Go right back. There's no hope for me. So by the grace of God, I'm still married with this gap. Hallelujah. <laughs> Matthew chapter 26. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse number 69 through verse number 75. I'll be reading from the NIV version. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. You are also with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed, then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. With the help of the Holy Spirit tonight, I want to preach a message called the sin of silence. The sin of silence. Father, Thank you for your word that's already going forth, Lord. I thank you, Lord, that it is not returning to us void, but it is accomplishing what you sent it to do. Lord, tonight I pray for unction that flows so far beyond my own ability, my knowledge, my experience, God. But, Lord, that you would do something to arrest our hearts, that we would repent of the sin of silence tonight. In Jesus' name I pray. And everybody said, amen, amen. You may be seated. The sin of silence. 
If you've been in church for any amount of time, you've probably heard the account of Peter's denial where he denied Christ three times. And they, there's an old joke that used to say that that is why preachers love chickens because the rooster told on Peter, called his sin out, and, every, and Peter went and killed the chicken, and, Peter, and, and preachers don't like their sin being called out, so we're always killing chickens and frying it and eating it. And that's why the preacher likes fried chicken. But that, that's not really there in the Bible, but that is something that kind of goes around circles and why preachers like so much chicken. But you know, he denied it three times. Not, not just to anybody. I mean, there was a servant girl, a young lady. How I many you know it's easier to talk to kids and teenagers than it is an adult? And if, if a little girl come up to me and begin to ask me, I don't think I would have a problem telling that person that I know Jesus. I, I don't think there would be any fear associated with just talking to the girl. But he denies it to the servant girl. And then when they all come to him and says, Peter, your accent. Some translations say, Peter, your voice gives you away. We can tell by the way that you speak that you've been around him. Let me tell you, if you've been around Jesus, you'll act like Jesus. And you might even say things that sound like the Holy Spirit. So here he's speaking. And they said, your accent gives you away. And he still be, and he begins, he calling down, curses cussing and says I don't know the man the rooster crows he goes out and he weeps bitterly and we shake our head and we say I'm glad that I never did that I've never done that but the church the body of Christ in this hour especially in America has still found a way to deny him let me pose a question to you. Which one of the wounds that was inflicted upon Jesus' body caused his death? How was Jesus beaten? He had that crown of thorns on his head, and it wasn't just some of those, like, those blueberry briar patch thorns that we have here in Arkansas. These were like the acacia thorns that I find in Kenya, Africa that are this long and can puncture a tire on a Land Rover. That's what was not just going into his skin on his scalp, but was literally piercing the skull into his brain. Was that the wound that killed him? What about the lashing with the cat and nine tails that he took upon his back 39 times? You think Jesus was a wimp? No, he withstood a whipping with that cat of nine tails. 39 lashings he endured. It was that the wound, though, that killed him. What about the wounds that were in his wrist and in his feet? Was that the wound that actually ended Jesus' life? Or was it because while you're on the cross, unless you pushed up with your feet, you couldn't get air, but then it hurt too bad to push up with your feet and you let down and you basically suffocated? Was that what caused Jesus to die? Some people and scholars and medical science will tell you that Jesus had a heart attack, that, that he actually had something going on inside of him that caused his death. Was that what caused the death of Jesus? None of those wounds was the wound that killed Jesus. What killed Jesus, let me present this idea to you, the wound that ended Jesus' life was the wound of the disciples' silence. No one spoke up for him. The false accusations that they made against him, those disciples knew who he was. But nobody spoke up for him. And as New Testament believers, 
in this house here in America. I'm here to tell you that we know who he is. And the same wound that killed Jesus on that cross is the same wound that's causing the body of Christ to become dead. I'm here to tell you tonight, I understand, I know that it was a part of God's plan for Jesus to go to the cross and die for my sin and die for your sin. But hear me tonight, we are still held responsible for our disobedience even when God is still working his plan. The sin of silence, the body of Christ, is not speaking up for him. What is the purpose and mission of this church? What is the purpose and the mission of the church of Jesus Christ across the globe? According to Matthew 28, 19, it says that we are to go into all the world and make disciples. Disciples, the word disciple means a disciplined learner. But let me tell you this, there's a lot of effort, a lot of people I'm here talking about, we just need to disciple, we need to focus on discipleship. But guess what, there's another part to this great commission that we see the other piece of the puzzle. In Mark chapter 16, verse 15, where Jesus said, don't just make disciples, but you must go into all the world and preach the gospel. You must preach the gospel. Listen, what is more important, the formation of a Christ follower through discipleship or the birthing of a Christ follower through discipleship? You can't bring discipleship until you first have conversion. And years ago in Billy Graham and the Jesus movement, people were talking about Jesus and sharing their faith. And they weren't, there was a season where it, there wasn't much of the sin of silence going on in the church. People were active and sharing their faith. But what has happened is during that time there was a lot of discipleship. So we had all this sharing of the faith and we had all this discipleship. And what happens in one season, an error that's in excess. In the next season, we try to swing the whole other way. So instead of people sharing our faith in us, calling sin what it is and preaching the gospel one to one, what we've done, we swung to discipleship. We have nobody sharing their faith. And so we've got this messed up mixture. Let me tell you, until somebody is truly converted, it does you no good to raise them up as a disciple. Matter of fact, there are some startling statistics I would like to share with you tonight. In a recent study that was put out by, I think it was Christianity Today and some other magazines, they posted online one day a couple months ago back in February, and I came across this statistic. They say that Christian millennials, the ones that were born between 1981 and 1986, they're, they're conflicted about sharing their faith. They're conflicted about the idea of evangelism. And almost half of Christian millennials believe that it is wrong to share their faith. Listen, what did Jesus say in Mark 16, 15? He said to go into all the world and preach the gospel. Is Jesus going to tell you to do something that is sin? No, if he said to go into all the world and preach the gospel, my God, that is what we are supposed to do. In 1995, in Bill Bright's book, The Coming Revival, he shared a statistic that only 2% of Christians tell others about Jesus. And if that was in 1995, the year before the last year of the millennials being born, then how much less today do you think that believers are not sharing their faith. It's not an option, sir. It's not debatable, man. 
Let me tell you, we are to be people who proclaim this gospel. Charles Spurgeon was a guy named, was known as the Prince of Preachers. He said this, have you no wish for others to be saved? Then you are not saved yourself. Be sure of that. Let me say that again. And I don't say that because, boy, it really, I'm telling you right now, tonight some of you are backslid so far and you don't even know it. Have you no wish for somebody who doesn't know Jesus to be saved? Then you are not saved yourself. Be sure of that. I said it on Sunday. I'll say it again. It's the words of Scott Kemp. There's two types of people here tonight. The soul winner and the backslider. Charles Spurgeon went on to say, not only do you not have a desire to, be, to reach people, does that include that you're not even saved? He said this, you're either a missionary or a mission field. You're either a missionary or an imposter. An imposter, a fake, a fraud. Yes, if you don't share Jesus, you are a fraud. If you don't tell people about Jesus, you are an imposter. You know why? Because a Christian means we are Christ-like. And I don't know any other better evangelist that ever walked the face of this earth other than Jesus. He came, according to Luke 19.10, to seek and save that which was lost. His heartbeat was for that lost sheep. His heartbeat was for the lost coin. His heartbeat was for the prodigal that come far off. He came with a mission, and he didn't want to do anything else until that mission was fulfilled, to seek and save that which is lost. And now that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father, he has commissioned us to go into all the world and preach the gospel and finish the mission of seeking and saving that which is lost. So if you're not seeking the lost, if you're not reaching out in evangelism to share your faith and how Jesus not only came and lived a sinless, perfect life, but he came and he went up a hill called Golgotha on Calvary and he bled and he died and three days later he came back to life so that you and I could have our sin forgiven, our names written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. And when we die, we get to spend eternity with him. You should be telling people the good news of the gospel the gospel. There's power in the gospel. And it's not just my job to do it. The scripture says everyone is to do the work of the evangelist. How many of you I felt something. I better drink some water after all that. How many of you here tonight want to see revival in Heber Springs, raise your hand. Next question, how many of you have prayed for revival in Heber Springs? Raise your hand. Well, let me tell you about what A.W. Pink said. He said, it is true. Many Christians are praying for worldwide revival. But it would be more scriptural and more timely for Christians to pray that God would raise up laborers to go forth and preach the truths that are calculated to bring about a revival. Because that's what Jesus said. Pray that I would raise up laborers and send them into the harvest. But what we do is God, you send it, not God, you send us. 
If you said that you've been baptized in the Holy Spirit and you speak with tongues but have never once shared your faith, you have not been baptized in the Holy Ghost. Hello? Speak in tongues to God but won't speak to your neighbor about the free gift of eternal life. No wonder the other denominations, and just like we experienced in our last tent revival, we had a guy that got and had an encounter, thought he was baptized in the Holy Spirit, came from a Baptist church. Apparently he just faked it, went back to his church and mocked it. You know why people mock that? Because we get in here, talk in tongues, fall on the floor, but never tell anybody about Jesus. Tonight, I hope that God will stir you and I can equip you to reach your neighbor, reach your city, and reach your world. I want to give you a couple of different things. This is not a hermeneutical or homiletical sermon. I'm going all out of order. I, I just finished Bible college. Still didn't fix that problem I have. I don't, I'm working on it, Pastor. Keep praying for me. I'll get there one day. Get my three-point sermon and get it down to 25 minutes so people can get that last donut and a cup of coffee out the door on Sunday morning. I want to tell you three things that are not evangelism. Talk about preaching the gospel, sharing the faith. What is not evangelism? Because the enemy, what he does is he plants lies in our mind and we believe the lie and we believe the lie and operate in the lie. There's no power in that. So there's three common lies I see playing in the minds of believers, and you may already know the, these lies and know that they're exposed for what they are, but I want to make sure that you know these three things before I can tell you how to evangelize. What is not evangelism? Number one, I'm not going to tell you the point right away or the title of the point. I'm going to tell you a story. I'm going to tell you about a guy named St. Francis, and if I pronounce this right, St. Francis of Assisi. Or a sci sci, I don't know how to say it. I use a theological tool called Google Search to find this. Because I heard his quote, but then I had to research to find out who the quote is. It's actually debatable about whether he actually made this quote or not or somebody else, but for tonight we'll say it's old uh, St. Frankie, okay? He said this Preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Is that a powerful statement? And when I first heard that statement, I thought, that's a powerful statement. But I don't look at it as a, as a powerful statement as I once did. Because what it does is it actually undermines true biblical evangelism. So this is what evangelism is not. Evangelism is not just living it without preaching it. We should live it and preach it, but just living it without proclaiming it does no good. The Lord wouldn't let me travel outside of Hot Springs for the first three months of this year. And I have a good pastor friend down on the Louisiana-Arkansas border in Junction City. He says, I need my people trained and equipped in evangelism. When can you come? I said, well, God put me on hold. I can't come. He said, well, can we come to you? And I said, yes, sir. So we were having a tent revival, which actually got moved indoors because of the weather. So we had revival Thursday night, Friday night. 
and we couldn't have it Saturday night because the church we were using had a fun function. And so what this pastor did is he brought him, his wife, and his two top leaders in the church, and we had the evangelism class in my living room. And so afterwards, he wanted to bless me and my wife, wanted to take us out to eat, so he took us to a place called Texas Roadhouse that just brand new, just opened up in Hot Springs. I'm like, and here comes the waitress. And I just got through talking to them about not just living it and actually speaking it. Let me tell you a long story short. I was nice to that girl. Did everything I showed kindness, showed how kind I was and how much we, we blessed her and did all this. But you know what? She never noticed that I was a preacher. Matter of fact, if some of you follow me on Facebook, you've seen some of my weight loss photos. And I was telling her about how I got healthy and I was trying to eat that salmon and not eat that bread and keep what I've, keep what I, you know, maintain what I've done. And she said, she wanted to see a picture. So I pulled up my picture, my before and after, and she saw that big old picture of my belly hanging out. And she says, oh, yeah, I see that beer belly. I said, I'll have you know, ma'am, I'm a preacher. And that was my chicken coop. I, sh I lived it before her. I wasn't cussing. I wasn't drinking the alcohol like other people were around us. I was kind to her, demonstrated the love of Christ, but she could not tell that I was a believer just because I lived it. She didn't know that I was a believer until I started to tell her about Jesus. God has privileged me to raise up some spiritual sons. I got a spiritual son named Quayshon Duvall. Some of you may know who he is. Quayshon Duvall is Youth pastor in Magnolia. Now he's a part of the church plant initiative in the Delta, and he's going to be moving up towards West Helena to take care of this church plant. But when he got saved in my ministry, I picked him up on the Wednesday night on the van, and I didn't tell him I was a youth pastor. And he starts to talk to me. He says, sir, sir, uh, what about this youth pastor I've been hearing about? I said, he's all right. He might preach okay. Maybe he won't get too out of line tonight. And I was just cutting up like I, I didn't let on to him that I was a youth pastor. I was kind to him, nice to him. Matter of fact, once we dropped everybody off and was in there playing basketball, he came up to me and he says, are you a bouncer? I showed forth the fruits of Christ, the kindness of Christ, the language of Christ. And you know what? It wasn't until I began to preach he realized, oh, this guy's the youth pastor. He's the Christian. He got born again that night. God told me he was going to go in the ministry. Now he's a youth pastor. About to become a pastor of a church plant. What am I saying this? You can't just live it. You have to Proclaim it. What is not evangelism? Number two. This is not evangelism. Inviting people to church. Oh, I, somebody got mad at that. Oh, but Brother Brady. Yeah, I'm going to tell you. Inviting people to church is not evangelism. Let me just tell you this. The church won't save you. Jesus will save you. The name given above every name is Heber Springs First Assembly of God. Whoa, hold on. I got it wrong, right? Hold on. What's the name that's, above, that's been given among men? There's, there's a name. There's only one name given to us on this earth by which we must be saved. And his name is Grady Watson Ministries. Hold on. Something's not right, Pastor. We got pride in the house. I'm about to fall right off and bust my face. No, who is it? It's the name of Jesus. I have no problem with you inviting people to church. Matter of fact, 82% of people who do not go to church would go to church if somebody asked them. 
But telling people about your church won't save them. Declaring that Jesus died for them and is alive, the power of the gospel will save them. What is not evangelism? Number three, this is not evangelism right here. And this is going to really make some people mad. Meeting people's needs is not evangelism. However, I do believe the church should be demonstrated. If they're hungry, feed them. They thirsty, give them a drink. They need clothes, put it on their back. Medical attention, you can help them, help them. But why am I bringing this up? Because my first trip to Nicaragua, we were going to an area where the road ended, I had to get in a boat, go upriver, go to this village where there was no electricity, no running water, and they never heard of Jesus. Unreached people. Never heard the name of Jesus. And on the way there, we stopped at the last place to get gas, which was a town or a little community called La Australia, which means the star. And as I got off that truck, because we was riding back one of those, like, you know, you ever seen those movies where they're smuggling people across the border? It's got the tarp over the cage. That, that's what I was riding in for three hours. And when I got off, I was ready for a break, and I was ready for a Coke. So I went to buy me one of those Hispanic Cokes. You know what I'm talking about? Got me one of them Hispanic Cokes. But at that time, come this guy up beside me, real skinny. He's just talking in Spanish. And he reeks with alcohol. And he smiles, and I see this gold grill. Come to find out that he was asking me for money, and I wasn't going to give him money because obviously he reached alcohol. He's probably going to go buy alcohol. I was later informed that there was a mission team that left there right before we got there that was a medical missions team, specifically doing dental work. Guess where he got the grill? And guess what? They did not tell him about Jesus. Because the missionary I was working with knew the person oversigned that teeth. And it made, there was very little salvations that took place. Very, that man, did, they did not preach the gospel to him. They met his need. And that's what happens. We'll go to Africa and dig water wells and know they need water well. If you're going to dig the water well, give them a water that never, never, never runs dry. And where they'll never thirst again. If they're naked, clothe them. But clothe them and give them a chance to be clothed with the righteousness in Jesus Christ which is made available through the knowledge of the gospel. If they're hungry, give them food. But while they're eating that fried chicken leg, because they sure eat a lot of those in Nicaragua. While they're eating that fried chicken leg, tell them about the bread of life. Don't just meet people's needs and think, because we got this socialistic, this, this mentality of just meeting people's needs without proclamation, and it's killing what we're trying to do for the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans 10, 13, it says, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, but how will they believe in him whom they've never heard, and how will they hear unless somebody preaches to them? You can meet their needs, you can live it for them, you can tell them about your church, but until you proclaim the gospel, that is not evangelism. Now, what is evangelism? Brother Gray, you've told me what I've been doing wrong. Tell me what I can do right. How many of y'all want to leave here with something you know you can do right? Give you four things tonight. Taking notes, take notes. If not, write it on your forehead or something. Remember this. We live in America 
We're a first world country. We have resources available at our fingertips. And I heard somebody say this one time. God sent his son, but left his book. And there's people that open the word, like a Gideon Bible, and they get saved. And there's power in written messages. And tonight, I, I need a volunteer. Who wants to volunteer? Who wants to help me out? I need some young folks. Where's, I need a young person. Come on, girl. Bring, bring your boyfriend up here. What, is that your brother? I'm sorry. I didn't mean to embarrass you. I'm bad about that. At least, she, at least Gabby's not being embarrassed tonight. Hey, did y'all get one of these? I found it in the offering tonight. No, not really. I lied. Forgive me. Okay. I also got this wallet full of money. Oh, it's fake. Just kidding. Okay. Y'all got to turn and face them. If you're going to learn to preach, you got to face the crowd. Don't, don't preach to them like this. It does no good. They laugh at you. Especially when you wear white and you sat down in the altar service and you got a mark on your back because your shirt touched the shoe. Okay? All right. Here's yours. Here's yours. Now, y'all are well body enabled. Do you have any medical problems, shoulder problems, elbow problems? Okay. All right. Take that which I just gave you. Can you do this? No, no just, just stick your arm out. Can you do this? Yeah, I need, I need you doing it too, sweetheart, okay? All right, keep doing it. All right, we're getting these reps in, okay? Maybe, maybe stick it out to the side, up high. Okay, so y'all well-bodied and enabled. Gabby, put your, put your stuff down. Come on, get up. Hand her that. Hand me that. I want that money back. No, just kidding. Okay, did y'all see that? Do you know what is on this fake $100 bill? The gospel. Do you know what's inside that fake wallet? The gospel. Now, these may be some people consider these cheesy, whatever you want to call it, I don't care. But you know what? There's a thing called gospel tracks. All it takes is elbow grease. So you're going to take that and give that to somebody at school tomorrow. And you're going to leave that in the hallway at school or work or wherever you go. Y'all can be seated. Y'all give them a hand. For, they, need, they need some applause. I got something else, another track in my hand. It's called This Could Be Your Last Five Minutes Alive. Do you, anybody in here called to preach? Raise your hand. Okay. And young people that run from the call of God, when you answer the call of God, you need to know this. You want to have a pulpit? Don't wait for pastor to ask you up here on stage. Get you some tracks, go down to Sonic and pass these out because that's where I started. This track says this could be your last five minutes alive. And you know it's real simple to do this. Use elbow. If you can use some elbow grease, you can share Jesus. If you're afraid and don't know what to say, listen, this track right here comes from Fellowship Track League. It is free. They'll send you 50 gospel tracks. If you need more, you call them. They'll send them to you for free. Hey, man, I got something out of the Bible for you today. I've never had anybody ever turn down a gospel track when I say, hey, something out of the Bible for you today. My good friend Carl Erickson, he is one of the greatest evangelists I know. And last year in 2018, he passed out over 250,000 gospel tracks. And people might say that tracks don't work. 
I was on the phone with him today because I wanted to know how many tracks he passed out last year. And he told me a testimony. He said, you know, those tracks we get from Fellowship Track League, there's a thing on the back that says if you accepted Christ as a result of reading this, you can fill out your information and send it to us and we'll send you another booklet about discipleship and how to grow in your faith in Christ. And so he was on the phone with Fellowship Track League because he orders a lot of tracks and they know what he's doing. They're glad to help and he sends donations to them when he can. And, and he was asking them, does anybody ever fill out the back of this and send it in? Because you would think tracks don't work, people throw them on the ground, do all this stuff. He said, do we ever get any response from this? The lady on the phone says, you know what, Carl? We have a lady that's on full-time staff here that all she does is spend eight hours a day sending everything to all the people that write in that want more information. And she never can catch up. She's always behind. In a day and time where it's all about digital and sending messages digitally and email, somebody to take the time to fill this out put it in a mail with a stamp and send it in. How many more are getting saved that aren't even responding? And you got to have somebody on staff full time just to take the request for more information. Listen, there is power in the message of the cross, even if it's just written down. So you know what? If you can't use elbow grease, look here. Carl was telling me the other day he was at a hotel somewhere out of state. And there was one of these places where there was like three or four hotels all gathered together. So there was all these cars. He was tired from passing out tracks at a ball game or something all day. He was ready to go to bed. And the Lord said, take the next 15 minutes and go put tracks on these cars. In 15 minutes, he passed out 100 tracks. We were talking about all the times we go to Walmart. If you could pass out 10 tracks a week at Walmart. I don't know how many people we got in this church, but I say it was a safe range. to say we have at least 50 people here tonight. Maybe more. I'm not good at judging numbers. This is the biggest, like, largest size church I really get preached at. So I don't know. I'm used to just five and the four no more crowd, okay? Everybody tell me how good my ministry is, and then they go with me, and like, oh, there's only four people here, and everyone sits up, you and looks like this. But if everyone in here took 10 tracks a week, that's 500 a week, four weeks a month is two grand. Is that right? Am I doing the math right? I went to school for Bible, not for math, okay? Multiply times a year. How many people have you just reached by simply using elbow grease and hadn't even had to open your mouth other than maybe here's something out of the Bible for you today. If you cannot even pass out a track, you are a wicked and lazy servant. Next. Not only tracks, because a lot of people, you need to not just let it be tracked. You need to grow from faith to faith and glory to glory. So you know what? Use the track because you're in a rush. Drop one in a bag or something. No, go into the drive-thru. Pass out your tracks. But there's something else you can do that's very powerful. And Romans 12, or Revelation 12, 11 tells us that believers overcame the devil by the blood of the Lamb Come on. And the word of their testimony. Everybody in here has a personal testimony. Your testimony is powerful. 
You know, we tend to think that, you know, like Teen Challenge, I used to work for Teen Challenge, and those guys would go on a choir trip and talk about how they're all strung out in drugs, and, you know, they, you know, they beat their mama and beat their wives and their kids, and they went to jail and went to prison, come out, and God's restored them, and they're going to preach in Africa. And we all are like, man, I ain't got a testimony like that, but guess what? Not everybody's a drug addict, and somebody needs your testimony. You know, some of you are friends of me on Facebook, you see me putting those transformation stories up every day. Why do I do that? Because there's power in somebody's testimony. I have people call me and say, I've been seeing all those testimonies, those transformations, and I read it, and I read it, and I read it, and it gives me hope, 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 and I'm finally going to call you and see if I, if I can get some help too. And you know what happens is they read enough of those testimonies and realize there's somebody else out there that's got a struggle like they do that they can identify with, and if there's hope for them, there's hope for me. Somebody needs to hear about how God pulled you out of drug addiction. But you know what my testimony is? I didn't smoke, I didn't drink, and I didn't chew, and I didn't go with girls who do. I was a good kid, church boy, you know, you know, all that stuff. But you know what? I told white lies, I took things out of my dad's tackle box, and I looked with lust and pornography. And I was going to the same hell that all the party people were going without Jesus. And you know what? There's somebody here tonight. You know how to play the game. I wasn't really trying to play the game. I didn't even know that I was playing the game. That's what the Baptist folks told me I could live and still go to heaven. But it was playing the game. Live any way you want to. As long as you're not doing the big stuff, you're not actually touching the girl. As long as you're not robbing a bank. As long as you're not telling a big fish story. Listen, it doesn't matter whether it's a fib, a lie, an exaggeration. A lie is a lie, and all liars will have their place in the lake of fire. My testimony is I was still headed to hell, to the same hell that the drug addict was going. Because we are all under sin. And there's some of you that need to hear my testimony. You want to hear another portion of my testimony? Is that eight months old. See, I was raised the first eight months of my life, and even beyond that, most of my life, in a non-Christian home. But at eight months of age, my mom noticed something that was wrong, took me to the doctor. They did some tests, come to find out there was a tumor that showed to be cancerous. They didn't have insurance, and they did not have money. And my God, my mom, who believed that there was a God, but didn't know the true gospel, had just a little bit of dealings with the Catholic Church. She prayed, and she said, God, if you will let this boy live, I give him to you. The community that we lived in did a fundraiser. You know what the fundraiser was? They auctioned off shots of alcohol to raise money for the surgery I needed. And then God spared a young boy's life who now preaches the gospel and delivering people from alcohol. Somebody here tonight needs to hear your testimony. It doesn't have to be long. It can be short in about 60 seconds. I did it on the street at Mardi Gras because my Bible college required me to go to Mardi Gras. Sitting there with somebody there in a hurry, in 60 seconds, I told them how I was destined to die. God spared my life from cancer, raised me up to preach the gospel. And I said, I was going to the same hell that all those drug addicts were going. But then I found Jesus. In 60 seconds, I shared my testimony. You know why? You know why it's so powerful? There's power in what happens in real people's lives. Somebody needs your testimony. Tell people what God's done for you. That is evangelism. You don't have to be, go to Bible college to preach. You don't have to be saved longer than one minute. How God saved you. You just tell your story. And if you can overcome the devil with your testimony, surely there's power for the gospel to reach somebody's soul through your testimony. 
Think about John chapter 4. Jesus was at the woman, had the woman at the well and was telling her that, you know, you're coming to seek a water that will, that will always leave you empty, but if you take the water I give you, living water, you'll never thirst again. And you know what happens? She's so moved because this guy just saw my sin. I told him I didn't have any husband. And she says, you're right. You've had five husbands and the guy you're living with, that's not your husband. Oh, hello. Just totally called her sin out. She gets so convicted, so moved, she goes to the city, tells everybody about this man who told her everything she ever did. And that whole community comes out to hear Jesus. And you know what that community says? We not only believe because of the word that you spoke, but we have heard it for ourselves. And we believe Jesus. They came to know Christ through that woman's testimony. What one person could you reach with your testimony that in turn goes out and tells the whole city and they try to cram themselves in this church? Testimony. Did you know that there's an evangelism scripture all the way back in the book of Genesis? And to tell you how to evangelize, point number three and point number four are going to come from that scripture. So in Genesis chapter 22, verse number six, and I'll give you a little background. And if you're wanting to flip there, you can flip there. I'll be kind of talking out of the NIV, but it's the story of when Abraham goes up the mountain to sacrifice his son Isaac. In case you don't know the story, God speaks to Abraham and says, take this promise, child, sacrifice him as an offering unto me. He's going up the mountain. He's got the donkey and all this. And verse number 6 tells us that Isaac had the wood, but Abraham carried something. It says it this way, but Abraham himself carried the fire and the knife. He was obeying the command of God. And as New Testament believers, guess what? The command of God is to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And the same thing that Abraham carried is the same thing that you and I need to carry, and that's the fire and the knife. In other words, if you want to start with the knife, it represents the word of the living God. Guess what? The word of God is living. Hebrews 4.12 tells us it is powerful and active. It's alive. It is sharper than a double-edged sword. It not only pierces both joint and marrow, but it separates the soul and the spirit, exposing the inner motives and intentions of man's heart. You want to be a soul winner? Pass out tracts. Tell your testimony, but make sure you're not guilty of the error of ignorance along with your sin of silence by not knowing the word. If you don't know the word, you can't preach the word. Listen, I've been reading the word so much my entire life when I got called to preach. They told me, now that you're a preacher, you need to word, read the word every day. Guess what? Once you get saved, you need to read the word every day. But I read the word so much that almost if somebody asked me to preach on the spot, I could probably pull a scripture and just start spitting. There's enough word in me that I could almost wing it if I wanted to. May not be polished, but I could sure make it happen. I do it at Teen Challenge. I walk in on Teen Challenge on staff on 8 o'clock on a Monday morning. I said, so-and-so, here today they're sick. Can you preach chapel? I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm ready. And I'd preach chapel. i start spitting that word. You've got to know the word. You've got to hide in your heart. There's power in the word of God. Listen here, folks. There's an evangelist by the name of Ray Comfort. 
He has a ministry teaching people how to minister one-on-one, and he does what we call open-air preaching. He'll get on a box and preach. Specifically, he likes to go to Huntington Beach in California, preach open-air to people that are on the beach. He tells them about Jesus. And whenever he has open-air preaching and the crowd begins to gather, there's always usually somebody that wants to heckle him or give him a hard time. And there's this one time he shares a story of where he's preaching the gospel and he's telling people about Jesus and there's a heckler there telling them that, oh, you're a fake, you're a phony, you just want money, you hate people, you hate gay people, you hate the lesbians, you hate all sinners. It just kept on and on and on and he couldn't get through to that guy. And all of a sudden a scripture came to his mind where Jesus was talking about all the cities that had rejected the truth of the Lord through prophets' mouths in the Old Testament and said, if, thou, if, I, if the God that is preached to you in the city he was actually in, if that same message was carried to you or carried to them that you have received, they would have repented. But unless you repent, you will perish. That word, unless you repent, you will perish. That word, unless you repent, you will perish, came into Ray Comfort's mind. So every time that guy gave out a heckle, Ray Comfort just lifted his voice and said, unless you repent, you too will perish. And he'd get heckled some more. And he said, unless you repent, you too will perish. And he'd get heckled some more. He said, unless you repent, you too will perish. That's all he said to the guy. The guy storms off mad, goes home. The guy gets home. He's getting ready for bed. Lays down. And as soon as his eyes close, a voice comes into his head and says, unless you repent, you too will perish. He tries to go to sleep again. As soon as his eyes close to fall asleep, he hears the voice, unless you repent, you too will perish. He wakes up and again tries to go to sleep. And as soon as the eyelids close, unless you repent, you too will perish. This went on all night until the next day the guy comes back to Ray Comfort and says, every time I close my eyes, all I could hear was the voice saying, unless you repent, you too will perish. And I have given my life to Jesus Christ. There is power in tracks. There's power in your testimony. But don't be afraid to give somebody a harsh word and say, listen, out of love I tell you, unless you repent, you will perish. There's power in the word. Is your knife, is your blade sharp? Are you ready, both in season and out of season, to share with people the hope that you have in Christ? Have you spent time reading and studying and Meditating on this gospel is your blade sharp tonight. Speak the word. And number fourth, the fourth thing is the other thing that Abraham carried, and that was the fire. We are Assemblies of God people, Pentecostal people. How many of y'all believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit? A few of you, that's okay. We'll get the rest of you. How many of you believe in the IPE. How many of y'all know what IPE is? I-P-E. Initial physical evidence. IPE. It's one of our distinctions. So we believe in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then the next one right after that is we believe in the IPE, the initial physical evidence, that when you're baptized in the Spirit, you will speak in tongues. But can I share with you something? That even though I believe that to be true, I feel like the Lord gave me a deeper understanding of the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we miss because we focus on IPE. In Joel chapter 2, Jesus, or Joel prophesies the coming of the Spirit. He says they'll prophesy, they'll see visions and dreams, 
on men servants and maid servants, I pour out my spirit, and then the fulfillment comes in Acts 2, and you don't see in that moment visions and dreams. You don't see prophetic utterance. You see them tongues of fire, and you, see, you hear the wind. There's tongues of fire, and you see them speak in tongues. What if I told you that the baptism of the Holy Spirit was not just about a language, but it's to give you power to be an evangelist? How does the baptism of the Holy Spirit give you power to be an evangelist? Because obviously you speak in tongues when you're filled. But if you ever let anybody of the Lord go into them and go, It's happened in other countries, but I haven't seen it happen here in America yet. So how does it give you power? In Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit begins to come, the first thing that happened is the room was filled with a mighty rushing wind. They heard. It says they didn't, it was actually a wind. They just heard the sound. Everybody say, hear the sound. They heard the sound of a wind, and the next thing they, they had happen is they saw something. They saw tongues of fire, and then they spoke with tongues. And did you know Jesus, what made him a powerful evangelist, is he only did what he saw his father do. And he only spoke what he heard his father say. And when he said, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, what he was saying is when the Holy Spirit falls, just like it did in Acts chapter 2, you'll receive an ear to hear and an eye to see what the Father is doing. In other words, there's only so much you can do by handing out a tract, sharing your testimony, and sharing the word from memory. There's a deposit that comes from the Spirit where you begin to minister to somebody, and there's a whisper in your ear that says, this person was molested by their dad, and they need to be healed. And you minister to them, they break down, they fall, and realize that God does love them, and they're real, and they repent of their sin. Sing. What the Father is doing, I was in a revival service one time, uh, getting preparing for a revival service, and it was on a Saturday night, and the, the next day was Sunday. I knew what I was preaching Sunday morning. I knew what I was preaching Sunday night, but I began to prepare for the altar call for Sunday night. I was praying, asking God how, what he wanted to do, and all of a sudden, if you want to call it a vision or whatever, the Lord showed me a picture of a young man standing in the sound booth at the church that I'm supposed to preach at, and the Lord said that that young man had a call to preach, a call to ministry, and he'd been too busy running, building his own kingdom and not entering that call, and I was to call that out in the altar service. Show up Sunday night. It's not even time for me to take the pulpit. It's before service, before worship. I get behind the pulpit, and I just kind of set my Bible down. I look up, and in the sound booth was the young man that I saw in my prayer closet the night before. Long story short, I'm getting ready. I preached the message. I'm getting ready to call that out like the Lord told me. And the Lord stopped me and spoke to me and said, he's not the only one. There are five people here called to the ministry. They've been too busy building their own kingdom. You need to ask them to come down right now. And guess what? All five, including the young man that is in the sound booth, came down and says, I'm called to preach, and I'm putting my hand to the plow and not looking back. Why was that moment so powerful? Because in prayer through the baptism of the Holy Spirit, God gave me an ear to hear what he was saying and see what he was doing. And in turn, all I did was replicate what was already going on. When you begin to minister to people at the workplace, people in the school, what you need to do is have be so in tune with God and let the Holy Spirit give you the ability to hear, see, and release with your mouth the sound of heaven. Matter of fact, I was even taught this after I was baptized in the Holy Spirit that a lot of people that receive the baptism begin to speak in tongues. They actually hear the tongues before they even utter it out of their mouth. And that makes sense because what happened first? They saw and they heard and then they released the sound of heaven out of their mouth. What made them so powerful? Why was Peter's message so powerful? Because I believe when he was in that prayer closet and God clothed him with power, he was praying to such a degree that God showed him the crowd, showed him the message and what to preach. And when he preached, those 3,000 people got saved. I call this power evangelism. 
Because there's only so many things you can do in the natural. You couldn't look at me tonight and tell that I had cancer when I was a baby. There's people in here tonight, maybe you're the one that's been molested in the natural. I cannot tell who has dealt with that or have been raped or anything. But the Holy Spirit might want to minister healing by giving somebody a word of knowledge. Or maybe it's just simply somebody's thinking about quitting on their marriage and the Lord gives you the word and you go to them and say, the Lord shows me that you're quitting, wanting to quit your marriage, but God says, hold on, because the word says that you're not to divorce what I have joined, you're not to separate. Some of you tonight need to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Not so that you can just speak in tongues. Not so that you can speak in tongues again, but so you can actually have the power to discern the voice of God, see what the Father is doing, so you can be an evangelist for his name's sake. So what now? What now? We know what evangelism is not. We know some things of what it is and what it takes to be an evangelist. But maybe there's some here tonight you would say, still, Brother Grady, I know I should be sharing my faith, but I don't know if that's for me. I don't know if I feel led to do this. All right. There's sometimes, what if I told you that tonight, all right, I don't feel like being faithful to my wife right now. I'm going to go find some woman in the congregation. I just don't feel, I know what Jesus said, but I don't feel like it. How would you, what would you think right now? I'm about to rest, I'm about to beat this dude down. I got this microphone, take my offering back. Huh? Pastors deal with this all the time. My pastor, I know that the Lord says I'm supposed to tithe, but you know what? That light bill is, is pretty big this month. I don't feel like getting my tithes this month. I know the scripture says to love my wife as Christ of the church. I know the scripture says that women are, you know, we're supposed to respect our husbands, but I don't feel, I don't feel led to do that. See, it's not feeling, it's obedience. And tonight, some of us, the reason we have no feeling, we have no unction, no stirring in our soul for the lost is because we lack conversion in our lives, which gives us the money. I mean, if you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, you'll want to share this gospel. Some of us don't even realize the reality. There's people here tonight, you're not saved. You don't even realize the fate that you're going to have. If you die tonight without Jesus, what waits for you on the other side? It's called hell. And believers, that coworker you won't share your faith with, that neighbor you won't share your faith with, they're one breath away from hell's flames, and you had the answer. Not only are we guilty of the sin of science, we're guilty of the sin of selfishness. The fate of the ungodly should move us with compassion to push aside all our excuses and share our faith. So tonight, before we move into the altar service, I want to leave you with a picture of the people that you failed to show compassion to. I want to give you a description of hell. There's a guy by the name of John Thomas. He wrote a thing called The Hideous Doctrine, and I've adapted it and I've abbreviated it for the sake of time here tonight. What I want you to do in closing tonight, I want you to close your eyes. Everyone, old, small, believer, and non-believer. And you need to grasp the reality of the fate of the ungodly. Luke 16 tells us of a rich man who died and went to hell. Luke 16 tells us that hell is a place of great physical pain. 
The rich man said, I am in agony in this flame. We do not make enough of this. We've all experienced pain to some degree. We know it can make a mockery of all life's goals and beauties. Yet we do not seem to know pain as a hint of hell. Hell is a searing foretaste of what will happen to those who do not know Christ. It is a grim reminder of what believers will be spared from. God does not leave us, leave us with the simple fact of hell's physical pain. He tells us how real people will respond to that pain. First, there will be weeping. Weeping is not something we get a grip on. It is something that grips us. Recall how you wanted to protect and restore the person that last, you last heard weep. The Lord wants us to know what an upsetting experience it is for the person in hell. Another response to hell will be wailing. While weeping attracts our sympathy, wailing frightens and offends us. It is the cry of a soul seeking escape, hurt beyond repair, eternally damaged. A third response to hell will be gnashing of teeth. Why will there be gnashing of teeth? Perhaps because of anger or frustration. It may be a defense against crying out or an intense pause when one is too weary to cry. Hell has two other aspects rarely considered which are both curious and frightening. On earth we take for granted two physical properties that help keep us physically, mentally, and emotionally stable. The first thing is light. The second is solid fixed surfaces. Hell is a place of darkness. Use your imagination now with your eyes closed and picture the person who's just entered into hell. It's a neighbor, a relative, a coworker, a friend, maybe yourself. And after a roar of physical pain blasts that person, they spend their first moments wailing and gnashing their teeth. But after a season, they grow accustomed to the pain. Not that the pain has become tolerable, but the capacity in the mind has enlarged to comprehend it, yet they're not totally consumed by it. Though they hurt, they are now able to, able to think and they look around them. But as they look, they see only blackness, darkness. In their past life, they learned that if they looked long enough, a glow of light would yield definition to the surroundings. So he blinks and strains to focus his eyes. He yields his efforts to try to gain definition of the surroundings. And he blinks and he strains. They focus their eyes, but their efforts yield only blackness. They turn and they strain their eyes in another direction. They wait, but they see nothing but unyielding black ink. It clings to them, smothers them, oppresses them. They realize that the darkness is not going to give way, so they begin to feel for things, something solid to get their bearings, and they, they reach for the walls, and, or maybe rock or a tree or grass or something. They stretch their legs to feel the ground, but there's nothing there. Hell is a bottomless pit. But our new occupant is slow to learn this. In a growing panic, they kick their feet, wave their arms, stretch. They lunge, but they find nothing. After a few more feverish tries, they pause from exhaustion, suspended in the darkness. Suddenly, with a scream, they kick, they twist, they lunge until they're too exhausted to move. Unable to touch a solid object or see a solitary thing, he begins to weep. The sobs choke through the darkness. It becomes weak in the roar of hell. As time passes by, this person begins to think as the rich man did. He begins to think of hope. You see, he still thinks as he did on earth where he kept himself alive with hope. When things got bad, there was a way out. If there was pain, they took medicine. If hungry, you eat food. 
If you lose a loved one, there's another love to be found. So the lost person begins to think in their mind for a plan to apply to the hope that's building inside their chest. And they think, of course, Jesus, the God of love, he can get me out of this. So he cries out with a surge, Jesus, Jesus, you were right. Help me, get me out of this. They wait there, breathing hard with desperation. The sound of their voice slips into the darkness and is lost. They try again. Jesus, I believe now. Jesus, save me from this. Again, the darkness smothers their words. Our sinner is not unique. Everyone in hell believes. So he does what everyone else would do and attempts to assess the situation and try to adapt, but he finds that the words of Jesus concerning both heaven and hell is true. This is forever. Forever. He thinks and his mind labors through the darkness until he aches. Forever. He whispers in wonder. The idea deepens and widens and towers over him. He again begins to think that when he's put 10,000 centuries of time here, they will not accomplish one thing. And as the rich man pleaded for a drop of water, so too the new occupant to hell entertains a similar thought. In life he learned that even bad things could be tolerated if one could find temporary relief. Perhaps even hell, if one could find rest from time to time, would be more tolerable he learns that the smoke of this torment, however, goes up forever, and there's no rest day or night. Think of that. Church, you can look up now. No big deal to hold on to our selfishness and our silence. How can we look into the eyes of the fate of the ungodly that we've yet to share Jesus with? Let them know who our Lord is and think that our God will not hold us accountable. In the parable of the talents, three servants were given talents. The first one five, the second one three, the last one was given one. The one who was given five got five more and when the master returned, the master blessed him to enter into the joy of the Lord. When the one that was given three went out and got three more, and when the master returned and saw that he got more, he said, bless you, enter into the joy of the Lord. And then when he got to the one that had the one, the one that was just given the one talent, went and buried it in the ground and hid it. And the master who represents Jesus looked at the servant and said, you wicked and lazy slave. Throw him in the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if you call yourself a believer, there's one thing you know the master has given you, and that's the gift of Jesus. And when you bury it in the ground and do nothing, you may hear those words depart from me, you wicked and lazy slave, into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. What will you do? Tonight, you have a choice to repent. If you're not a believer tonight, 
Go ahead and everybody just close your eyes with me right now. If you're not a believer tonight, your sin of silence is you having yet to confess Jesus as the Lord of your life. The only thing that's unforgivable on this earth is the rejection of the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And believer, tonight, you need to repent of your silence and your selfishness.